So I'm Sage Latora, and uh, recently I was going through my shelf of role-playing games and found just how many games there are there and started thinking about why all these games? Why do we choose one game or another? What thoughts go into that? Uh, and it got me thinking that I should sit down with my friend Adam. Hi. And uh, talk about our favorite games. Ask a question where the answer is always a game and uh, get started with that. So this week, our other question is... What is the most underrated game? So, I took an interesting approach to this. I immediately tried to figure out what underrated meant, and ended up going to RPG Geek, uh, right. and looking at everything that has a RPG Geek rating. There has to be a rating for something to be underrated, right? Exactly. Uh, so. And there's lots of ways that I could have measured this. I thought about a lot of different options, which is probably more thinking than this question deserved, really. <laughs> uh, but the thing that I ended up with is um, going by everything that has an RPG geek, geek rating, which means that it has to have had a certain number of reviews, uh, and the ordering is based on both number of reviews and score in those reviews. Sure. Started at the bottom and went up until I found something that I legitimately thought was in the wrong place. Because the bottom, like, what is it, 6,000 have less than 10 reviews. It's and insane. so they don't get a geek rating. Yep. Uh, so at first I started with the absolute last thing in there, which once you, even if you sort by geek rating, the things that don't have geek ratings, it just kind of throw like it has some fallback. I don't know what the next ordering is. Uh, but that was too many games to go through. Yes. Uh, so I ended up with uh, skipping, like, Fatal. That, that was the last yeah, game in there. Underrated, it has to at least, you know, there has to be, a, your rating has to be higher. That right? is the lowest RPG Geek rated game, though. So um, have you rated anything on RPG Geek, speaking of which? I don't know that I have, actually. Uh, so, I'm not helping the problem. No. <laughs> See, this is the problem right there. Okay, anyways. So, where I ended up at, um, slightly above Indiana Jones, which is mostly known for being destroyed and becoming an award in the <laughs> destroyed pieces, um, number 554 is Call of Cthulhu D20. Really? I think that that is a lower rating than that game deserves. I, I can agree with that, but... Really? So, okay, the, the, a couple of things that I passed along the way that I'll mention as kind of runners-up because they were lower, but I had a harder time just to find them being higher. Deadlands D20. I actually played a lot of that game. Mm -hmm. It was not good, <laughs> but I'm not sure it was quite as bad as 663. Sure, sure, sure. Uh, and then Cadillacs and Dinosaurs, which I've always appreciated the directness of the concept. Uh, but the place that I ended up at was Call of Cthulhu D20. So in the Call of Cthulhu... Uh, there's been a ton of those RPGs. Mm -hmm. Where Where is that in the continuum? So in my personal continuum, it's surprisingly far up. Um, there are a handful of games that I might put ahead of it for specific takes on Cthulhu, but mm -hmm. Call of Cthulhu D20 actually does a few things really well. Um, and it gets a lot of heat for a number of things, including, for instance, having stats for Cthulhu, <laughs> uh, which plays into kind of its biggest weakness, that it's trying to be every Cthulhu game at once. Um, right. Which is also kind of its biggest strength. That's part of what I like about it. But so when when did it come out? And then there uh, were other Cthulhu games before it and other games after oh it. Oh man, I don't remember the... I have it on my shelf right here. Oh, cheating. I, I almost had it out. It's the reason to do it at your house. I know, but I, I almost had it out, but I was worried that it would tip you off to my choice when you walked in. <laughs> uh, so copyright 2002. That sounds about right. Okay. Um, and I played a lot of this game around that time period, and it led to uh, some excellent actual play experiences, um, due in large part to my friend Ben, who was running the game. He is an excellent Cthulhu GM. We had uh, many interleaving campaigns. He would get people together for uh, Saturday nights for maybe a few months at a time, based on one concept, 
And then that game would end. And over time, you started to see that all these games he had run were actually interlinked. <laughs> in the same universe. They were in the... And it, it's even better than that. One of the first games, I had a photographer mm-hmm. uh, who... Because this being Ben, my first instinct was to mess with his game. So I thought, what messes with Cthulhu? Proof. So I'm a photographer, and our adventure, we get thrown through time. Nice. Uh, there's dinosaurs running around and stuff, and I'm like, I'm totally sticking it to this game. I'm going to mess with Ben. I was the worst player. I'm going to mess with Ben and get pictures of dinosaurs, and it's going to blow everything open. Uh, and, of course, we get back to the, the our current time, and uh, all the pictures look like uh, Calvin and Hobbes, like uh, dinosaurs. It, it, well, but it fits Cthulhu. It, like, it's, it is very cool. It is a good way of dealing with it. Uh, it and you're getting to a point that I'm going to get to, that the okay. rules weren't helping with that much of this. Mm. That's that's a theme I found in a lot of these games that I was going through, is I feel like this game is underrated because I've had a session that was amazing, but I know that the rules weren't supporting the GM at all. Totally. And I think that the reason I feel like this game should be higher is that while the rules weren't helping... They were also a, a reasonable tool set. They weren't maybe the best tool set. They weren't the tool that actually helps you get the job done. But they were kind of like, uh, it, in my new house where we are now, we have a garage full of tools that the previous owner left. And none of them are very good. I don't know what a lot of them are actually supposed to be. But you can get a decent amount done with them. This uh, looks kind of like it could be used as a hammer. So. Exactly. And so it's kind of like your garage full of tools. It's not the perfect tool set for getting this job done. Like, I couldn't build a desk with it. It's not a desk building toolkit with, you know, the right saws and table saws and stuff, but it'll get the job done. Which is funny, because it's Call of Cthulhu D20, right? And D20, if anything, is a hammer, D20 is a hammer. Exactly. And I kind of like it for being the hammer of D20 game, or uh, Call of Cthulhu games. Mm -hmm. It actually reminds me in a lot of ways of, um, are you familiar with Cthulhu Dark? No. Um, So this was Graham Walmsley, uh, who designs wonderful Cthulhu adventures and writes eloquently about Cthulhu, uh, he basically was thinking about how, how stripped down can you make the game. Uh, and it, I could probably describe it all in this podcast and people would still be listening by the end of it. It's, <laughs> it's that succinct. Sure. Uh, and in some ways, Call of Cthulhu D20 was the same thing for us. Like, we are, had already played D20. It was simple enough that yeah. the book was just kind of a set of suggestions uh, that helped us do a few cthulhu things. We immediately cut out some of the stupid things from the books. Like, you can get telepathic feats. We, we didn't have telepathic feats. Why do you want telepathic feats? So they, so they went kind of GURPS mode and just said, let's just throw everything into this game? And they're trying to replicate the, the substance of the stories, which does include characters who probably need things that in the D20 system makes sense as feats, I guess. Uh, but... They're not that. That doesn't actually cut to the style of play that you maybe want from a Cthulhu game. Mm-hmm. But we played these games uh, for years, uh, and by the end of it, the the kind of conclusion was the apocalyptic future. Cthulhu had actually awoken. Our characters were these survivors struggling through, and uh, we realized that if we we've managed to find you know a cache of weapons, it's kind of Walking Dead future. You know, you're walk, you're we break into a prison or whatever. Forget where we got the weapons, but we had like rocket launchers and stuff. We'd tried to find a way to stop Cthulhu, and we realized that uh, there was this magical alignment, we'd be able to see through time, we'd be able to see who was responsible for this, and kill them. <laughs> and go rewind it, yeah. Uh, well, and yeah, we don't even have the chance to rewind it, we just have to kill them, and our future will never existed, you know, the typical days of future past kind of thing. Sure. Oh, we send somebody back, and yeah, oh, we'll never exist, but it'll be better that way. Uh, and of course, my uh, I had missed some of these games, I'd come back and forth. My new character was, I think, a school teacher or something. I was there for that session after missing a bunch. Mm-hmm. Um, 
falling through time, we get the portal through time, we see who's responsible, and it's my character from the very first game I had played in this, <laughs> the photographer. And his photos, despite being grainy and everything, had led up to Cthulhu being resurrected in some, or, you know, rising, uh, blah, blah, blah. Yes, emerging from the Emerging sea. in whatever eloquent way we want to fa- phrase totally. that. Uh, so that was this wonderful pay- playoff, uh, payoff of this long-running game. Right. That the rules helped with to the point that they they were a simple rule set that the GM could manipulate to be a good GM. Totally. Um, which is not something that I... I think there's a, a scale of games. The really great ones help the GM. Right. The okay ones are toolkits that the GM can kind... If the GM has the skill, they can work excellently. And then the bad ones actually get in the GM's way. Right. Uh, and this is one that... In the rankings on RPG Geek, which I'm going to use as my straw man underrated. It's, it's pretty much what we have, right? I, I couldn't I couldn't think of any other place where you could really go for a real rating of RPGs. And RPGs aren't really set up as a kind of thing that you can rate because are they're generally like one you know, you know, they're lifestyle games. You you go play you go play D D forever. Mm-hmm. And you even play D D second ed. Forever. Forever. Three comes out and you're like, screw that. I don't want to play anything but my favorite You're one of the few people I know who would use second edit. Like, I've I've been at conventions and people have asked me, uh, you know, there's lots of people who are still playing um, various early flavors or three five. And, you know, I can find lots of hacks for those things. But I'm a second ed player. Where is my, (laughs) uh, where's my Lamentations of the Flame Princess? And it. There's, there's a lot. There's really no reason to play second ed. <laughs> that's, why, that's why I bring it up. No, 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 I'm gonna offend all the second ed people out there. The, like all of oh, the I've different been versions. Oh, I've D&D people for a while. It, I, it, <laughs> I'm sure uh, the the problem is that you get your first game, and for as as a player, as a as a non GM player, it hardly matters what the system is. Right? I, I would. Hear me out. So it hardly matters what the system is as long as your GM is good because your GM is going to use this to create just a crazy we're going to hang out and have a good time kind of experience. And if it's your first game and the GM's like, you know, what do you want to be? You want to be a fighter? Okay, roll some dice. You're a fighter. What do you want to do? And you go into this game saying, well, I want to hit that thing. You know, or I whatever, right? I, I, my mom's first game, she wanted to talk to the kobolds and try and calm them down, right? Mm-hmm. And, and you do those first things, and how the GM responds to those first things, the system can definitely help the GM respond better, especially if the GM's it's the first time that they've ever GM'd anything. Everything that happened in that first session or those first few sessions of that first campaign becomes the game to you. It doesn't matter whether it was actually in the book or not. And this is even more true for old school for old school RPGs, which tell you explicitly, players aren't supposed to read this book, you know, they don't know anything about what the DM is told. And then you have this game where it went amazingly, and 90% of that happened to be the GM that time, but you have no idea. You're like, oh yeah, second hit is amazing, right? And I think this is something that we're probably going to return to as we record more episodes, but the, the system matters thing is because system matters just like everything else. It's not saying only system matters. Right. Like, every component of your experience has something to do with that. I mean, one of the things that I actually associate with Call of Cthulhu D20 to this day is after that amazing final session that blew our minds because we all, of course, everybody there had played in earlier games. So we all saw right. our previous characters and it was, you know, it was the fan service callback mm-hmm. that 
it, when I tell you guys about it, it doesn't mean anything, but this was years after the initial one it's through an multiple campaign. campaigns. Yeah, totally. Well, and it, it was interlinked campaigns even. Like, these characters, we kind of knew that the same things were going on, but this wove all these things together, and we realized that it had all been one big plot. Amazing. Uh, but... After that, I got in my car and drove. I only had to drive a few blocks home because we actually live nearby. <laughs> but uh, the thing that happened to come on my iPod at that moment was um, exit music from a film by Radiohead, uh, which has this refrain of, uh, I hope I'm naming the wrong, right song. Um, of, <laughs> we can edit this. <laughs> we'll throw in the right song if mm-hmm. I got that wrong. But the, the refrain is, um, I think I'm crazy, maybe. Uh, and it just repeats that, of course, in like Tom York's distorted voice over strings and everything. But listening phases, to that and yeah. driving at night through like a deserted <laughs> town after this mind blowing experience was part of why that worked. Um, right. And that is, that matters right. as uh, less than system. Like if we had been playing Fatal that night, it wouldn't have mattered at all. But a lot of things matter to the play experience, and system is. Most certainly one of those, but it's not the only one. Well, system, like, the, the play experience is, is, is the system smashing into the players, right? And, and if the system itself is too weak, then it'll smash into the players and the players will just, it'll just be a player-driven game entirely, and then there's no point in having the system. And if the system is too strong, plus or minus, you're not giving anybody else any room. So there's... This is a really weird balancing act. But so it's really interesting that you that baggage sits around Call of Cthulhu D20. And, and it's not Which so much is great. That, right? It's not so much that I think that it's a great game, but I think that as far as general purpose Cthulhu rule sets, as well as some of the more focused things, mm-hmm. um, and especially for people who are already familiar with D20, part of why I think it works is that it lever for people who are already familiar with D20, you can get in there and not worry about the rules much. Mm-hmm. Um, it's simple in the way that. Uh, it's simple because you have familiarity with it, as opposed to some really great games that are simple because they're designed to be simple. Right. What did you play before this? Um, lots of like, things. Like just <laughs> recently before this. Oh, I would have a hard... We often played a lot of D&D. Sure. Um, and we would play... We actually played GURPS. We had and some, this was 2002? Yeah, this was not so. too long, yeah. This was okay. during kind of the height of D20. So we played a lot of D20. Um, we had not yet... Uh, that group, some of the first... Um, games kind of outside the norm that we really hit on were uh, My Life Master and Burning Wheel. We had not hit those by this point. Mm-hmm. Uh, but even knowing those games, I still look back on this fondly, and I don't want to minimize... I both want to not oversell it. It's not a game that if you've already played awesome Cthulhu games, it's probably going to revise your opinion of it. Right. But it's also not as bad as it gets made out to be. And in particular, considering how highly rated on those same RPG geek rankings some of the it's other like, Cthulhu yeah, games are. Yeah, the top ten is... Has several Call of Cthulhu games. And, and I actually feel like, uh, unfortunately, it's not as supported as some of those. Because some of the reason right. that those uh, systems are so highly More rated recent. is because they have wonderful adventures for them. Right. Whereas if there was ever a published adventure for Call of Cthulhu D20, we didn't touch it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do feel like the actual system there, it, uh, provides, it provides a few useful things. And it provides a lot of neutral things that you can easily use if you can provide the rest. And... System involves a lot more than just the dice mechanics. Uh, the presentation and some of the stuff that um, I think in a, some more modern games would have been turned into more of a procedure, especially for the GM. It has a lot of things that are unfortunately phrased as GM advice, which means that they're buried in lines and lines of text, and they're usually a, you may want to do this. Whereas I think the game would actually be stronger if they made the default do this, and then once you've played it for... 
once you've tried it and you realize, oh, I know better, you can know better. Instead of saying, uh... That's very, very modern, though, right? That's extremely modern, ex- having the book tell you, okay, this is really how you play this game. And not, here's a whole bunch of rules, the GM will figure it out. Exactly. And I, it's both, uh, like, I, if we're measuring on an absolute scale, I would say that would be a better game with those things. It would be even further underrated if it had that. But it's still a good game with totally. those things buried there, and it's presented very well. Like, that's another thing that, uh, like, system matters and presentation matters. The book is, yeah. in some ways, one of the better Cthulhu books. It's a, more of an overstated Cthulhu. I think other books do a really good Cthulhu presentation uh, by dialing it way down and just having kind of the creeping edges. Whereas this is, like, uh, one of the tricks they use that uh, is kind of brilliant. The text is laid out in two columns, and the columns slant down the middle. Oh, gosh. So they're not two equal columns. There's actually kind of a diagonal line to the page where each column either gets narrower or wider as it goes along. And uh, if I remember correctly, it's set. I guess I could open the book again. It's uh, it's <laughs> Cheating. Justified. It's fully justified. Okay. So each of those columns forms a really strong shape, uh, which is a beautiful trick. Like, it, it's very much a trick. I wouldn't want it all the time, but it really smacks you in the face with, this is not a straight line game. This is slightly odd. Um, Sweet. So yeah, that is my pick, uh, Call of Cthulhu D20, because while it is not a great game, it is better than a bad game. Uh, which is where people are. <laughs> high review praise, it. high praise. And so but I'm going to ask you about yours in just a second, but this is something I wanted to come back to how we measure underrated, because I think right. both of us went for things uh, we're about to find out for you, but <laughs> things that are rated in some way. And I right. thought about um, going with underrated as under discussed, because there are games that I feel like uh, there's a few people who really love them, but there's not enough of them. Uh, but it's harder to narrow in on one of those. I kind of wanted a... I went for a more numeric approach to this. I also thought about games that, uh, while they're loved by a large amount of people, don't see, as far as I know, play very often. Right. Because that's another kind of underrated. Um, or games... There are some games I think people love, but they... Uh, there are people, maybe not the same people, who talk down the mechanics a lot. I thought about sure. actually going with early D&D. But that seemed like a very obvious issue. Yeah, and, and, and it depends on the audience that you're talking about, too, at that point, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, but I think even the people who love the game don't tend to... The, there's um, a small group of people, including myself, who talk up the design of early D&D as well as it's, like, it's a great game and there are actually some wonderful design choices in there. Right. But we're kind of the minority. Most people who love it are kind of the people who... Um, have different feelings about design. They're they're not into the uh, post forge, which I guess is kind of where I fall into. Oh, oh you're, you're going to have to expand on. Uh, so the forge was a, a place to design games, and they a lot of great games came out of it. Um, and there's including Burning Wheel, My Life with Master, Sorcerer. Um, right. You could probably say John Harper's stuff came out of that. And it's super early internety. It, it's early internety. It pissed a lot of people off for. Pretty good reasons. Right. Uh, it was a very derisive thing, but they really paved the way. Uh, the fact that Dungeon World is successful is in part because of what those people designed, because Vincent Baker, who designed Apocalypse World, is part of that as well, but also because they paved the way in independent publishing. Um, the, the things that I know about publishing and getting a book that sells this well are because they paved the way. Right. And anyway, those 4G people, uh, there, was, they, there are certain factions within there that... Um, like to look at earlier games as not being as well designed. Uh, and there, I would say that now I'm, 
oh, I hate playing these name games, but like I'm, <laughs> I learned from these people, and I think that within a certain subsection of people who are tangentially related to the Forge, there's this. Uh, there are people who love those games as well. So right. I thought about basically approaching this as people don't appreciate the design of early D and D. Here, are amazing things there, but. Uh, it seemed a little cheap. So anyway, so I, Adam, I, what I is your underrated it. game? I, I approached it from several different ways. So RPG Geek is horribly low signal. Oh, totally. Horribly low signal. It it ha- it has some signal, but it's horribly low signal. I do not mean to promote it as being great. <laughs> so I went, and I've rated all of the games that I've played on RPG you would. Geek because I'm a geek. And so instead of doing that, I decided to pick apart very specific pieces of underrated. Okay. Um, so one of the games on my list... I feel is underrated because people play it. I have three. Oh come on! You, you I, I have the a question. primary game. You answer the question with one. You can I, mention things you hit along the way, <laughs> but it's one game. Okay, then I'll mention the other two that I hit along okay, the way. Sure. Uh, I feel like this game people end up playing, and they say it's really great for generating something that you actually play. Mm-hmm. Microscope. Uh, I was uh, as soon as you said that statement, I knew where you were going. Right, and and I think Microscope itself is an actual is a really awesome game mm-hmm. just to play, and because it's really easy to explain. I can show up with a pack of index cards and just play the game. Nobody else has to know anything, and at we just stop whenever, and then we have this big stack of cards that's an artifact of play. Right. I'm gonna kind of guess that part of your enjoyment of that is that you're very much a crossover. Like you enjoy large swaths of games like uh adam and i play a lot of board games together we play rpgs together we play board games at very different ends of the kind of board gamey spectrum and for somebody who has that breadth of play i can totally see why uh microscope is and i tend to agree like i think that trying to play the definition game of sure microscope is good but it's not the right kind of good is kind of pointless right and there's so many different games for so many different people so that's that's the interesting thing so so microscope was on my list i felt that it's got enough people that love it though and for whatever reason that love it that i felt like it couldn't be the primary point so so the second game that i've got uh that i passed through is this game called on guard from 1975 Mm -hmm. uh microscope by the way 2011 ben robbins uh, the Fractal RPG, it's still in print, I believe. Uh, On Guard is also, in a sense, still in print. I think that the most recent printing is 10 years ago at this point. Um, this system does not help you at all. At all. Uh, On Guard is a game where you are musketeers in 16th, 15th, 17th century France. You are, you are totally cool musketeers in Paris, and every so often you go out and fight and probably die. So why is this underrated? Because the background of the system for Play by Forum is mind-blowingly awesome. The idea that the point of the GM is to just kind of accept whatever the players want to do, all simultaneous and all relatively secret, and then the GM is going to put out this gigantic newsletter. And that's the GM's job. So the GM's going to do this like once a week. And it probably will take them about an hour. And this is the weird thing about this game, is that most RPGs that we play now are, I'm going to say I'm going to do something, and then in 30 seconds or less, the GM has to think of, describe, and respond to me with something awesome that's going to happen. And I have to think of, respond, you know, and describe something awesome that's going to happen in my 30 seconds. But this system is... Full advantage of play-by-form and simultaneous. Interesting. The players are not on the same team. Uh, they're all thrown into the setting with totally random characters. It's full-on funnel, but you only have one. Uh, and 
then you the GM is left with, well, how do I make this system, how do I make this world interesting for them to inhabit? And from the player perspective, what would I want to do as random musketeer nobody in France? Uh, and most of the time what you want to do is make some money because you are very poor. Um, it's, it's just Built-in built in problems. Right. And, and the great thing about this game is that it's 40 years old at this point. But now that we have all these modern RPGs that we can also fall back on, this goes back to the full GM argument, right? Now you can get a GM that says, okay, I know how to make a world interesting. Mm -hmm. I have tools like fronts and beliefs and traits and whatever that I can apply to this system. Yep. To the point where our current GM that in the game that I'm playing now uh, is using faction rules from one system and belief rules from another system. And <laughs> we're thinking about totally throwing out the dueling rules. <laughs> the, and, the original point of the game. Right, right. The thing exactly, that you exactly. And... But the game itself would not stand without the original book, right? Okay, that's it a only... lot of discussion for a runner-up. So let's, let's get to your actual pick. Okay, so the actual game that I picked, because I'm cheating all over the place, is Tenra Bancho Zero. Okay. Uh, Tenra Bancho Zero uh, came out in 1997 in Japan. Well, not Zero, Tenra Bancho. I was about to say, wait, 97, you're blowing my mind. But yeah, 97, yes, the original right? release. In, in Junichi Inoue uh, did, like, everything. He basically self-published this thing in Japan. Go ahead. No, no, go ahead. And, and then Zero, uh, which is basically the revision, got published by Fear three years later. And then, you know, what was it, five years ago? Something relatively recently. Uh, I would have to check, but I want to say... Uh, Maybe three years ago now, because we were at PAX East, where Andy did not... He only had... The, the books were still on the way over on the boat. Right, and Katowski. Yeah, that would be maybe only two PAXs ago now. Uh, so, like, two or three years ago. Relatively recently, uh, Totally Awesome Andy Kay uh, translated this thing and took forever. It was basically his white whale and brought it over to the U.S. Um, this is Japan, the RPG. Uh, Hyper Japan, the RPG, uh, maybe. And, and that is not the thing that interests me. There are several things that interest me, including um, this is a gigantic dice pool system with points that get spent in an economy um, in 97. Wow, uh, that's... <laughs> yeah. Uh, it has a method of play that's basically, uh, that's basically a theater kind of style, mm -hmm. which is built so that the audience is interested and can send fan mail, in a sense. Interesting. So we've only read the English version of this, but is it... Is it pretty well described? Like, is it uh, compared to? It is dense. It is dense. Um, it is definitely well described. There are actual play notes. There's mm -hmm. a manga of actual play. But uh, it's pretty clear. It's it not is clear the kind how of... to play it. Mm. Nice. If you if you have everybody read the book for a, for a ninety seven two thousand ish game like there if you even look at Burning Wheel uh, there are things there that are really important that didn't really enter the the published portion of it until the adventure burner in 2010 or so it, it, it is it is it is described well enough that there is a scene creation and and finishing mechanic there is uh there are mechanics for how you enter and exit scenes there are mechanics for how the gm should describe one how you should move into the next scene what you should do as an introductory scene and how you should huh. do that full-on like 
2000 era, hey, we'll walk around and see what the characters are doing, mm-hmm. Apocalypse World style well, intro. Or even more so, uh, Primetime Adventures with right. really focused scene level mechanics, mm-hmm. which are uh, they're one of the most interesting things in gaming, I think, because they, they either really work for you or they really don't. Um, and I think they're a wonderful way to bring in some new people to gaming. Not obviously everybody, but uh, when you can tell somebody, okay, we're we're kind of making our TV show or something, and they're used to, oh, you know, can I have this character come in now? They're they're wonderful concepts to leverage. They're not the only way to do it, but right. the fact that they're doing that in a game that, even if you credit the revision of it, that's right. two thousand. Right. That uh, fifteen years ago. So so b- beyond <laughs> that, at the beginning of the session, you uh, distribute essentially fate points, mm-hmm. um, and he, Andy calls them fate points. In no, he calls them kiai iki. Uh, I can't remember. Um, basically, at the beginning of a session, uh, you have a bunch of beliefs believe it or not. Uh, I don't believe they're called <laughs> that, but they're effectively beliefs, fate, things like, uh, you know, I, I love this person so much, whatever. And those beliefs have a score, and you roll dice, and then that determines how many fate points you have for the Interesting. Are those fate points tied to that belief in any way after that point? Or are they? No, but there's a cycle. So there's a full fate point economy. So once you have all these points, you can spend them to improve your character. There's no XP in this game. It is You have to have beliefs to improve your character. Crazy. 15 years old, right? <laughs> uh, and then once you spend them to either improve your character or to give you bonuses on die rolls... Arthur okay. style. Yep. Uh, you the spent be- ones become karma, which is effectively bad. Mm-hmm. Um, you accumulate too much karma. You suddenly remember this is full on Buddhist Japanese Buddhist style. Accumulating too much karma, your character cares too much about the world, <laughs> and you are deprotagonized. Oh wow! You are killed. But but you accumulate karma. You use you sub- sublimate your fate. So you say. You know, I've gotten over my love of this person, mm-hmm. and I just don't care about it anymore. And the points that that fate was worth are removed from your karma. Oh, that's amazing. So your character evolves over time, and it has to, or you will be... Because otherwise you're too bound to the world, which yes. is both a beautiful statement of uh, a certain set of beliefs and a great gameplay thing. I So I'm sadly <laughs> not as familiar with this game as I should be, uh, especially considering that I helped Andy sell it for... A fax. It's, uh, but it's pretty mad. That's amazing. And the more you describe it, I had heard people uh, complaining, basically, that this was, you know, just a modern post-Forge game. I guess that's going to be the theme of this, is talking about post-Forge. <laughs> but 97, even 2000, right? That's, that's really early. 2000, what, we've got... I, I don't think Primetime Adventures was 2000 yet? I mean, that is... That is maybe like Trollbane Sorcerer. It's, uh... it's pretty old. It's it's another one of these on guard style things where it was parallel development, right? mm-hmm. uh, which is just just madness. So so that's that's not all of it. I mean, it's also also not all shiny roses and, and sunshine. And <laughs> we'll, we'll get there. Um, so one of the other things that the theater play kind of leads to is that you, as your character, does not have full control over their story. Mm-hmm. When you meet somebody for the first time. You roll two d six at to look up on a table uh, on a matrix on a on a you know so you mm-hmm. cross referencing this thing to figure out what your reaction to, this, to them is. Interesting. They roll for the similar thing. Mm-hmm. These are not small reactions. These are reactions like I must kill you or 
we're going to go get married and have children, or I need to save you from yourself, or whatever. And that's both wonderful in that this drives play like crazy, and it it can wear thin in some... Si- I, I haven't played this, unfortunately. <laughs> but in other games where, you know, reaction roles tend to lay, lead to dramatic now reactions, it can get a little crazy. Uh, we, we've been playing um, Apocalypse World Dark Ages, and... Right patching together things from different versions of that, but we have uh, we had a reaction move that at first was like that, and we basically had to rewrite it, because it got really crazy over time. But they just is... walk into a room and... But this is supposed to be crazy. Oh, oh yeah, right? because this is Hyper like a dial Japanese, to... you know, super theatric, you know, and that's, it plays into the strengths. And when I've seen, I mean, I've looked at the books, and yeah, the, now that you remind me that this is supposed to be hyper-Japanese and hyper-everything, hyper it's, it's not even just a hyper-cultural thing, right. it's a turn to 11 kind of game, the fact that somebody walks in and they are out there to kill you totally fits. Now, and this is also character-character. It is not just character oh. So, So, what ends up happening is you basically do um, bonds, randomly generated bonds, mm-hmm. as the characters meet each other. Mm-hmm. And because of the way the scene structure plays out and the introductory scenes and the opening scenes, you never have everybody meet at once. It's, okay, now, Joe, you're in the scene, and Sarah, okay, you're coming in from the, from the village to see what's going on out here, and you guys meet, roll on the table. Mm-hmm. And suddenly, there's this insane moment of, well, you hate me, but I really want you. So how... What are we going to do? And then the players are talking about this and everybody is laughing and you can donate some of your points to other people in the Mm -hmm. scene. You can designate somebody to be kind of the judge and donate points. Uh, Yeah, that's the scene ending mechanic is that when you finish, when you have a pool of points that you can donate, when the pool is gone, the scene ends. Huh. So there's a brilliance there in that this is um, comparing it to Bonds, which obviously are a thing that I kind of like, uh, it's just-in-time Bonds. Right. Like, we're, we're computer people and we think of, you know, just-in-time compilation and stuff. This is, okay, who cares about setting up your Bonds ahead of time? We'll just figure it out if we need a Bond between you two. Right. And so you enter a scene and it's like, okay, we better figure out what that is. And the random aspect of it helps it keep that hyper-attuned feeling. Like, right. it, if you could write your Bond at that moment and it was, oh yeah, we... we we're friends a while ago, but we haven't seen each other for a while. That doesn't feed into that, like, over-the-top, driven aspect of it. It also super builds in the play-to-find-out aspect. Mm-hmm. Because you don't, you can't start the game. You can start the game with a bit of backstory. And character generation, I am not a fan of character generation in this game. Um, you can start the game with a bit of a backstory, but you can't be like, okay, yeah, you and me, we're best buds. Because as soon as you see each other... it. Yeah, all that goes out, out the window. window. Yeah. Exactly. So, so character generation. Uh, some of the characters are relatively straightforward. Uh, all of the games that I have played of this, I've ended up falling back to pregens. Mm-hmm. Almost all of them, and even then, some of the pregens are just too much. Um, because what I want is I want to play this game as this kind of theater of insanity, and you go out and you do hyper Japanese things, and it's totally awesome. But one of the characters is basically a uh, 3.5 wizard at level 15 
And you point by very all of specific. your stats. Well, you know, you know the kind of archetype. You better know your character exactly, oh. and all of the tools you have at your disposal, or you are not going to do it. Because otherwise, you're going to sit there the entire time. Which is uh, an interesting thing that I've thought about. The I'll insert this here for really? some random reason, but. Uh, Wizards can actually be easier to play than fighters because you have a specific list of things that are like, I sleep. Uh, whereas you don't have to create everything off the cuff. But when that once that uh, set of choices becomes huge, if you're playing the 15th level wizard and you just sat down and are like, I don't know how this works, and you've got a spell list, yeah, that's... Potentially a better description if you've read these pieces, because this is a harder one to get, um, is the Burning Wheel Magic Burner... Mm -hmm. The one that lets you point by spells, and it says just limited our audience to yeah. (laughs) It's it's basically create your own spell. Here's fifty thousand effects. Go for it. And you know Luke being smart said, "Don't do this in play. Mm -hmm. Do it before play. Figure all this stuff out, and then in play pick one of the ones that you've already done." Because oh my gosh, so the problem is that it doesn't tell you not to do that in play. So you're you're coming up with the whole well, yeah. You're is, like I'm gonna I'm gonna summon this thing, and it's gonna have these traits here, and these traits here, and these traits here. I played one game, and I knew two scenes down the road somebody was gonna want to have one of these, mm-hmm. and I told him, you know, go ahead Start and figure now. out what you want. And we got to that scene, and he was like, I can't figure out what I'm supposed to roll yet. So we'll do some other scene first, and then we'll come back. Mm-hmm. And it's like there are other pieces of it that are. Basically, if you know the game really, really well, fly. Because then you get to do all the fun stuff. Mm -hmm. But if you're playing with a bunch of new people, it ends up turning into, well, you get to play the fighter uh, this game because that's the only thing that... You can understand. Right. And that's really sad because there's some really awesome, culturally weird things in this game. Mm -hmm. Pinocchio-style mannequins that are built and they don't know if they're truly human or not. They might actually (laughs) not know that they're a mannequin or not. And playing that kind of line out is very interesting. Just all of this crazy stuff. And all of the crazy stuff, super light, is how I end up playing it. Mm -hmm. I basically play, uh, Luke, forgive me, I play Mouse Guard version of Ten Revenge of Zero. and I say, you know, let's. If you want to summon something, just describe it in words and roll a bunch of dice, and it'll be awesome, and that'll be great. <laughs> and nobody that I've played this with has been upset. Everybody's loved this game. So, so your comment there about it'll be awesome uh, makes me wonder what what does failure look like in this game? Uh, so because this is something, some of these over the top games get into the like, well, failure isn't really a thing. We're gonna roll dice to see how awesome you are, and that. It's not my favorite thing. I can't remember where the book goes with it. This is the problem with with the way that uh, I read through the book, and I've got all of the dice pool mechanics, and the dice pool mechanics say, here's a couple of difficulty levels, and that's awesome. And I can't remember if the book calls out specifically, oh yeah, when somebody fails, do this. Mm-hmm. Um, How do you be- handle it in play? I mean, In play, play, I handle it like I handle any kind of RPG <laughs> failure, which is, oh, something interesting better happen. Oh, you're the worst GM. You're not playing this. Oh. <laughs> right? But, but this is the thing, is that uh, I believe that the book has specific ways to go. However, because of the way that points work and mm-hmm. how you can just drop a whole bunch of points onto a roll... Failure isn't very... You don't often fail. Oh. You, you'd fail on occasion, but in general, it's just like, 
Well, I really care about this, so I'm going to drop 10 points on it. You're Let's totally go, selling right? me on this as a game for somebody else. You're, you're selling all these things that I know really work and that have no interest to me at all. What I'm going to have to do is I'm going to go have to have to go find out exactly how it tells you to deal with failure. Mm-hmm. Because I've read so many books that don't say anything that often I assume the book is going to tell me that. Which is one of the big problems with reading kind of a modern RPG, uh, you know, whatever, Sorcerer... Uh, you know, Apocalypse World, Burning Wheel, is that all of that GM advice I'm used to being, by the way, this is advice, mm-hmm. and it's not. And so Tenra, I assume, as a 2000 game, is not going to have GM device advice. Uh, I don't know, given everything else you've said about it, that could be the, the, like, the next thing that Vincent Baker is going to produce is already in <laughs> Tenra Bancha. <laughs> Who knows, right? But so, but so the the... The the systems, you know, as you know, because my big thing is much more board games and systems, and the systems of the game support just this beautiful style of play. Mm-hmm. That the details of GMing, I'm like, well, who cares about that? Because the systems are so good. Um, but now I'm going to have to go strongly well, read it, through. Your point about missing things in books mm-hmm. uh, is, I think, kind of a weakness that I don't know how to address in role-playing text because every role-playing text has to be both kind of the uh 400 level textbook on the game right. as well as the 100 level textbook on the game and that has to be in the same book so half the time i get to rpgs and i read and play a lot of them these days well not just these days uh and i get to it and i'm like oh i can flip through this and somewhere in that there's something important and it may even be spelled out really carefully but i have to remind myself that even these parts that i'm so tempted to flip through could be could contain some of the four hundred level stuff because right. if you're explaining the hundred level stuff, you want to explain like the the wonderful thing that I've seen in a lot of games recently is explaining advanced play, that just explaining all play and there's probably play beyond that that isn't explained. But uh, for the longest time, I feel like a lot of games would explain the basics of play and then figure out the four hundred or you know buy the other book, which didn't happen too often. Uh, and the games that combine the two are wonderful because you get the entire you get both how to start and how to play eventually. But it's also kind of painful. Like, if I have to read another what is a role-playing game segment... Right? Serious? Well, this is the problem, though, right? If it's the first book you've ever picked up about any kind of RPGs, you've never played the thing, you've never heard of it, you're just like, I wonder what this is. What is an RPG? I can believe that would be cool. The problem is that we skip them. Yes. Uh, well, okay. So uh, come sorry, on, I just come on. You totally no, no. skip. At them. this point, I read them mostly because there's I, that thing hidden in there that's like I read it just for comparison. Uh, I read it because uh, I feel like ninety percent of the time, if you read the uh, the what is a role playing game or like what is this because uh, this is my personal way of addressing it now. I don't even try and say what a role playing game is because oh, screw gosh. all those other things. Dungeon World just says this is what you're going to do with this book. Uh, who knows what Call it whatever else. you want. Yeah. Um, and those, I feel like reading that section, uh, if you're, let's say, an advanced reader, you can read through that and pick up things that in the rest of the book you'll be able to figure out things before they happen, kind of. I mean, I guess that's not the right... You're not reading it as a narrative. But once I've read that section, I feel like I can pinpoint later on... Uh, like, if you read that section... Certain things about how how it says people share uh, authority, or if it uses the word authority, uh, those things will tip you off that later on you're going to get kind of the designer position, the designer. Bias. Yes, yeah, that, that, exactly. What kind of game am I making here? Yeah, I'm going to describe it, and I'm going to call it a role playing game, uh, whether or not 
you know, anybody mm-hmm. else is going to call that a role-playing game. Well, and even worse, if they're going to call it, like, a story or storytelling game. Oh, gosh. And, and I love, the funny thing is, I love a lot of game. I love, in fact, a huge number of games that people call story games and stuff. But whenever somebody uses the term, especially in their own book to describe their <laughs> own game, I just roll my eyes. It's... It's so loaded. It it's, is It is so loaded. It's loaded and uh, trying to attach things to game in the text. Because mm-hmm. like we said, this is a, a 100 and 400 level thing. Right. The 400 level people are going to be drawing conclusions from the fact that, like I just said, I draw conclusions from the fact that you story. chose a story game, not, or even more storytelling game. And that's going to uh, tell me things about where you're going with this game. And then if you said role-playing game or if you said just game, all those I can... Uh, and it's not always, um, I don't want to say that I can outthink all these people, but it, it for the 400 level reader, that colors their perception. Uh, and I'm sure I'm not the only one who, you get to storytelling game and you're like, I see where you're going, sir. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't know. It, it's the challenge of writing a book that is both the intro to your game and the advanced text on your game. Rules writing, rules writing is the hardest thing. It's the hardest thing ever. It's the hardest thing for anything. Like even I play, I play board games that have two pages of rules and people complain about them online, and they're mm-hmm. like, you know, this thing wasn't covered, or this thing was covered twice, and it's different, or there's too much exposition in this rule book, or there's not enough exposition in this rule book, or this rule book was hilarious, that's great, and then other people about the same rule book say, it's hilarious, you're wasting all of my time, I just want to know how to play. And I don't know. So Tenra does... I don't know if it was done in the original zero printing, or mm-hmm. if this was Andy's idea... Um, but it has the main book, which is these are the mechanics. Mm-hmm. It has a storybook, which is here's the setting that you're playing in, mm-hmm. which is split, even though there's no way you would play this in any other setting. It just doesn't make any sense. <laughs> uh, I, I think there was, about a, games. there was a hack. There was a hack of somebody to to make it slightly different, but it was a, it was a major, mm-hmm. major overhaul. Um, and then there's a third and fourth book. The third is the small version of the setting, and you hand it to a player and say, just scan uh, this. Okay. That's basically where we are. And then the fourth, uh, I believe, was the manga actual play. I was going to wonder if it was the actual play, because uh, I have right over here a copy of Korean Dungeon World, which has the same thing. Uh, it is... Oh man, I'm going to offend some people if I say it's my favorite <laughs> non-English version of Dungeon World, because there are a few. Um Translators the, are so good. Oh my gosh, I got to talk with the Italian translators of Dungeon World and talking with them about how they had to deal with like terms like cleric, which of course we use cleric because we're building on that tradition. Right. But for them, the language choice there is tough because they have both the how the original D&D translators translated it, the term that is closest to the American the the American D&D usage of it, right. and the term that is most broadly understood to be the the clear translation of cleric right and oh my gosh talking about these they were all amazing gamers and they made me feel so bad being monolingual like all of them are sitting here <laughs> they could game in English like right. nothing else and they were all apologizing for their English and then translating the game perfectly as far as I can tell because they know things like this and they the only thing they struggled with were some of the pop culture references because once you pop start culture is different it's, it's different but so. So the Korean translators, like most translators, are pretty awesome. Yes. And in this translation... Have the manga. Of course. Which, uh, that is... I was waiting for you to get to that. And, sorry, we've launched in this entire digression, but the manga thing is... It's huge. It's huge, especially in games from um, 
Korea and Japan, uh, those are the only ones that I'm familiar with, actually. But I'm sure there are other cultures there that are... It's, it's, it's more... So the actual play... It, there's several levels of absolutely enormous here. The, the actual play is one major level. Mm-hmm. I, I would much rather read an actual play before I read the book, mm-hmm. right? And say, okay, how is this... What does this game look like? What does this game look like specifically to the person who designed the thing? Like... The examples of play in all of these books, they're like four, you know, lines of examples. And those are the things that I want. Yeah. I want to see, oh, yeah, so here's the D&D 5 example of play. And in the D&D 5 example of play, like, the third person is rolling a D20 to find out if they see something or something like I that. I know. The, the 5e ones kind of drove me crazy. Well, but, but that's the thing. It, that is how play is supposed to work as far as they're concerned. Well, and I think that there's an uh, there's inherent... Disadvantage here in that uh, most of the English texts write them like uh, basically theater scripts. Like it's like a play that it says who's saying it and what they say. And not many people read plays for entertainment or to even figure out the story. Like if I want to, if I just want the story of Macbeth, Macbeth, I'm going to find the the summary of Macbeth, not try to read the script of Macbeth for the most part. Like right. maybe I would because I is, like it. Which but... is the second level of huge, right? Yeah. Which is why manga is so much better for conveying this because the manga of this is split into, okay, this is what the table looks like. And here's the GM sitting over here behind the screen. And that's how you know the, the GM and, you know, here's two people rolling dice, and here's two people yelling at each other because their characters just, you know, are doing these weird things. And, you know, here's this person imagining this thing, and this person bringing snacks, and mm-hmm. you know, all this kind of random stuff. Well, and it does so much to establish uh, a social context that right. in a book, like, uh, I remember this in the third edition, Dungeon Master's Guide, uh, that it talks some about kind of, you know, the social construct of play. Have people over and uh, make sure everybody is at, you know... This gets brought up in GMing books a lot, kind of the the other side of running a game, which is managing right. to get two to five or more people together in the same place uh, in for the right context. For a relatively long amount of time. For a relatively long amount of time, on a regular basis, most right. likely. Uh, and that's all, when you write a text about it, it comes across... Kind of stupid, or uh, stupid isn't the right word, but it, it comes across either really condescending, like yeah, I know how to talk to my friends, <laughs> like, or by the way, you should be clean mm-hmm. when you go over to your DM's house. And you might want to bring of... a snack, right? Like, uh, I, we're sitting here with whiskey that Adam brought because he came over to my house, and <laughs> it's because I read the DMG. That's exactly, really... you learned from the DMG that you should bring whiskey to uh, somebody else's house. But the either that or it comes across as really weirdly specific like (laughs) i've read some of them from uh people at kind of a different end of the spectrum that talk about uh the level of like familiarity you have to have with people and those are important things but if that uh doesn't follow through with the rest of the text if it's not a game that feels like it demands that level of setting boundaries and stuff the idea of talking about setting boundaries can feel really out of place and really awkward um yeah as this you know i'm i'm not all not all of my games are totally weird and absolutely ancient uh the although microscope isn't really that old um i've been reading the dmg twos mm-hmm. for as long as they've been putting them out <laughs> uh because you know before i read something like burning wheel uh, there was no other DM advice book. Mm-hmm. Because like, the DMGs never 
they didn't really give you advice on how to run the game. The second one is always where they started pulling in the the how to make a group of players right. and stuff like that. What kind of players are they and what do they really want to do and how do you make sure that all of your players are engaged and how do you run all of this kind of stuff? And all of that has been really awesome and it's really weird that Wizards put them into two. Uh, but... But it's been really awesome. I've always loved those books. So. I feel like they can be really good, but often their uh, approach to those things, I feel like, could be baked further in. Uh, they they always kind of add it as, you know, the rules are going to... By the time they're talking about that, it's in DMG2. They're not talking about the core of the game anymore. Right. And it's this added on thing of, oh, how do you make things interesting? Like right. that. The, what the making things do, interesting should be the... What do you do with the player who's just kind of quiet and sitting over there and make sure that everybody gets a chance to talk and all this kind of stuff? And those kinds of things, I feel like, need to be addressed earlier on because those are the actual problems you have in play more so than, uh, you know, what is the proper amount of treasure for a character of this level? I would rather be able to get one great session where I know how to get people moving and uh, get the game rolling than figure out the right number of trolls to be fought at level four. Right. But probably that's, not. That's, that's, that's goes back to what's a game in the first place. Right? Exactly. You know, how much, so, of, how much outside of the system do you need to go before we spoil every future thing we might want to talk Whatever. about? We should probably try and settle this. Which game is more underrated? <laughs> Which more underrated uh, Terran Venture or Call of Cthulhu D20? I'm going to... So the, uh, that's, that's the, let's go difference between what people actually think about it and what is really true because we totally know. I, I mean, I think that you've, you've kind of sold me on Tenor Bencho, Bencho sorry, uh, being really before its time in a lot of ways. <laughs> And the fact that I, I mean, I, I've helped sell the game at PAX and I still wasn't that sold, but you have totally made me think that even I underrated it, which I think means that you probably win. I, I will take a victory there. Uh, Call of Cthulhu D20, I would feel uh, better about it getting rated higher um, if, if there weren't so many Call of Cthulhu games. But I think, uh, so this is something... And, and so, but so, but so this is the problem though, is that... Um, given two Call of Cthulhu games, you can pick one of two Call of Cthulhu games. You're not really going to pick one of two Hyper Japanese games because they, they just doesn't they just don't exist. I think that's a cheap argument. Just the fact that it's that it's uh, unique does not mean that it's more underrated. Perhaps, perhaps. Uh, so this actually came across. I read. Uh, I tried to look at the actual written reviews for. Call of Cthulhu once right. I found that it was lowly rated because I wanted I, like I kind of wanted or something. I, I kind of wanted ammunition of things to talk about <laughs> um, but most people just rate it with a star rating and yeah. that's it the few people who complained uh, and actually wrote something about why they were complaining were mostly complaining that it wasn't the uh, Chaosium percentage system right percentile system which I thought was the weirdest complaint <laughs> right because you know they, they, they would complain about the fact that Oh, it's so much easier to explain to a new person that uh, what a fifty percent in—I can't think of a skill that's in both—in reading in archaeology. Archaeology. There we go. Fifty percent uh, in archaeology is so much easier to explain than a plus two in archaeology, and I think that is the weirdest <laughs> argument for why one is better than the other. Everybody is so different, right? Yeah, Everybody, and and you want you want your system exactly. Um, I, and I think that Call of Cthulhu D twenty. Uh, while I agree. 
that it is not it as underrated. I can believe it is underrated. It, it is definitely underrated, partially because there are systems with uh, other Cthulhu systems with a larger fan base that people are going to come to Call of Cthulhu D20 and say, oh, but it doesn't have the thing that I'm used to. Right. Here's 50 Call of Cthulhu games. I have to pick... I can only really... <laughs> like, I'm not going to get my group to learn four of these. We can't mm-hmm. really do a comparison. Mm-hmm. And that's why I feel like it's underrated. Whereas this has no reason... There is no reason that it's... Uh, I mean, uh, other than the fact that it is a game in translation... Right. ...that uh, I, I feel like having a little more cultural understanding helps it click more from your description. Yes. I I think that all of the people that I've played it with, so this is the other thing, all the people that I've played it with have at least had some interest in the Japanese side of things. Yeah. They, when I sit them down and I say, okay, this is Buddhist style karma, it means something to these people as opposed to random person who is like, I have no idea what you're talking about. And Cthulhu suffers some from the same thing, that it's a game where, especially if you're sitting down somebody who, like you said, you you play your first RPG, and that, for the moment, is your entire knowledge of RPGs. Right. And that likely wasn't something in the Call of Cthulhu vein, because there's lots of things within that. Even in just the original stories, there's a lot of things that fall into the mythos. Right. Um, But once you're sitting down and... There's this particular vein of what Call of Cthulhu means in gaming, more so even than what it means in popular culture, and that can be a hard sell. Yes. Lovecraft. Lovecraft is is enormous and difficult. Uh, he's difficult for many reasons. <laughs> enormous and difficult. And that's that's the other weird thing, right? There's, there's definitely cultural weirdnesses here uh, in the art, mm-hmm. uh, in some of the themes that can be painful... Uh, to deal with. Well, it's always tough to understand another culture, especially depending on how much interaction you have had with it. I mean, I think that uh, that's a culture that I haven't interacted with as much as some others, and I might have a hard time sitting down with this game and understanding what the fuck is going on. At some point, I will run it for you, and then you can decide. And at some point, I will try to replicate Ben's awesome uh, Call of Cthulhu games, though possibly not with... Call of Cthulhu D20, which probably <laughs> explains why I'm only saying it's a good game, not a great one. Totally awesome. All right. Cool. We have totally settled that question. We have totally settled that question. There there shall be no more debate uh, <laughs> until we post this, and there will probably be plenty more debate. Quite a bit of debate on G+, and Facebook, and Twitter, and whatever. Wherever else you can find us. Uh, you can find us at AQ Podcast on Twitter, and uh, probably more places. And, of course, our uh, website is anotherquestion.com where you will find this episode and many more as well as what other uh, whatever distributors we can convince to take this hopefully iTunes you may you may be listening to this from iTunes and we will have been very successful <laughs> hyper successful All right. hyper successful from now on that's our standard hyper successful yes. well until next time that was our question for this week alright bye